All right, if you take your Bibles and go to 1 Kings, we're going to talk about the law of problem solving. And you may say, the law of what? What is this about? Well, there were two video files that never got recorded uh, for my leadership class last, well, actually, (laughs) over a year ago, I think. And we're trying to get those ready to go online. And so I'm teaching these classes. This is one that I've always thought about making a study on Sunday night. It's very beneficial. I think it's really beneficial for two groups of people that are not necessarily in ministry leadership positions. I think it's good for people that are in families. Um, sometimes if you do not deal with problems well, that'll pass on to your kids. It'll pass on to the atmosphere of your home, and it can really become something that is a real problem for especially your kids down the, down the line. But two, in a marriage, it can become an issue. Uh, that's usually where things start to fall apart is a lack of communication because a problem arises, it's a very severe problem, and there's not a way to deal with it. So I think, number one, it's helpful for people in families, and number two, it's helpful for people that work in teams, like in a workplace environment. I have been, I was blessed to get into Christian, full-time Christian work when I was 23 years old. Uh, actually, this month, or last month, August, it was 10 years since I started working here at Calvary full-time. Uh, but I worked in about four different jobs, all of them telemarketing call center jobs. And this is a huge problem, is the lack of problem-solving skills. Everybody is looking for some, something to offend. If, if, if someone can take the victim mentality, they will. And when you have somebody who just puts themselves in the victim mentality, it's almost uh, very difficult to impossible to solve that problem. But it, you've got to be able to work with people like that. So how do you solve those issues? That's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to go through a bunch of different things. But I want to start with Scripture first because I think there's a very, very good mindset that we can observe for how we should approach everything in our life that causes a problem. Before we start, though, will you join me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, it's a good thing for us to be here. I'm so thankful for the Awana program in the back and the leaders. I pray for all of the things that are going on, that it would be a blessing and encouragement, and that program would continue to grow. We ask that your will be done there, and especially as we study your word tonight. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. I want you to look in chapter uh, 3 of 1 Kings. Look in verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept him from this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now... Lord, my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David, my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. This is the first observation I want you to make. Solomon had humility. He recognized that although he was in the most powerful position in Israel, he lacked the knowledge he needed. Sadly, that's a very uncommon characteristic in young leaders today. As a matter of fact, I think there's a lot of young people that think they are the master of everything that they touch, that they don't need to educate anybody. It's funny, I was listening to a 
radio program when I was coming in. It's on the sports talk radio uh, program, and it's, uh, it's, it's a fishing show. I don't, I've, I am not a fisherman. I'm a fisher of men, okay? Like, I, I like to win souls. I don't like fish and all that stuff. <laughs> but they were talking about this, and they were talking about how there's a lot of these captains now. They go to sea school. That's what it's called, by the way. Sea <laughs> school, and they get their sea degree, um, and they, they start going out and starting these little businesses, you know, like a side hustle. And they'll say things like, 25 years of experience, and they're 28 years old. And it's interesting, right? Exactly. Bob, Bob's got it here. It's like, they are, they're, they're using this idea of, well, I've been fishing with my dad since I was three. And, you know, that, that's when my experience started. I, I think if you were to do a poll on uh, all third graders in America and you were to ask them what they did yesterday, you get a lot of them going, I don't know. <laughs> they, wouldn't even, they wouldn't even remember. But it's interesting because although there's, there's a lot of opportunity for young people, there's not a lot of humility. They automatically think, oh, I've got, you know, I'm, we're the next generation. This other generation had so many, the, the one before me had so many problems, so I'm going to be able to fix it. And there's no humility. And they go in full steam with a lot of pride, and it leads to a lot of contention. And when problems do arise, they're like, hey, you're, you're the issue, not me. Don't you know? I, I know the answer to everything. And especially when uh, you see how easy it is to access information. I was just doing the college orientation last week, and there's this whole, for every credit hour, you should expect two to three real hours for each credit hour that you take. So if you have a two-credit hour class, that would be about four to six hours that you should expect to spend in time and study and research. Well, people, back when that was made, usually when you would go and study and you wanted to look for material, you would have to go to a library, get a card, start looking, you know, actually like do a lot of physical labor to go and find the book and stack them and then go through it and all that. Nowadays, and I've, I've done this, I've done this when I prepare for most of the these sermons like I've been doing, this series where I'm trying to find quotes, I can type in a couple of keywords on Google and I can come up with verified sources very quickly. I have an ongoing subscription to all the theological, uh, theological journals and catalogs. I can, at my fingertips, I have literally 50, 60, 70 years worth of several journals. I can type in keywords and they all come up. And that's in a matter of five uninterrupted minutes you can get that kind of information. What's my point here? There's a lot of information at people's fingertips. But just because you have information doesn't mean you're good at what you do. What builds that uh, character, that success is, you need successful experiences. And a 28-year-old fisherman saying he has 25 years of experience, well, you know, he could say that, but does he really have 25 years of uh, sea captain experience? Not likely. Not likely. But this is how a lot of people are going into it. And I like that Solomon here, in his position, he said, I'm but a child. I lack the things that I need. Look what he says here at the end of verse 7. I know not how to go out or come in. I'm kind of just doing what I'm told here. I'm being led like a child. I need help. 8. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. So verse 9 here is, is where I want you to really hone in. I want you to look at this. 
And think about your families, think about your workplace environment when it comes to problems. Focus in on the attitude and, and, and the specific request that Solomon makes here. Give, therefore, thy servant an understanding heart. What does it mean to have an understanding heart here? He, he needs to be someone that will hear well. He's a good listener. He needs a mind that is willing to listen so that an understanding heart to judge thy people that I may, and this is probably one of my favorite words, discern. Not everybody has good discernment. People have, I think a lot of people nowadays have extremely poor discernment. Everybody's got discernment. It's the ability to make judgments, to make choices. But not everybody does those things well. And this is what Solomon asked for. He could have asked for money so that he had enough reserves in the bank to make mistakes. He could have asked for respect so that he wouldn't have to worry about people respecting him. It would just be automatic. He could have asked for power so that people wouldn't question him because of his military might. What did he ask for? Give me the ability to listen well and to discern. I like that. And I think you should carry that in the way you look at problems. Lord, give me the ability to hear your word and the ability to make good judgments. Look at the rest. That I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this by so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, what is this thing? Understanding heart, discernment, so he can discern between the good thing and the bad thing. By the way, college professors, we do this when we create tests and quizzes. Oftentimes, especially at the collegiate level, the multiple choice questions get more advanced. And if you've taken the SAT, you know this type of questioning. You may have six options to choose from. There are one or two that are just, they're wrong. They're, it's not even close. You know you can eliminate it. But the last four, there are about three that are good and there's one that is best. And that's a good, the ability to write a quiz like that helps the student discern at a better level. You can all pick answers that are good, but what's the best solution? It, now you think of King Solomon, he's not taking multiple choice quest, uh, you know, uh, quiz here, but he is going to make decisions that will d- decide the direction of the nation. David had messed up. You know, David wanted to build this great tabernacle, this great temple, but uh, God said, no, you're a man of blood. It's going to be for your children. And so Solomon now has this role. And because the, that he has asked for this thing, which is obviously God puts this request for good discernment above anything else he could have asked. He gets everything that he could have asked as well. Look at what it says. And has not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked for riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart. I've always wondered, and I don't have the answer for you tonight, I've always wondered, what is that? I've always wondered, what is it that Solomon received? Was it something supernatural? I, I tend to come down on the lines that he was, he was a very patient man. He was a decisive man. You see later on, we're not going to look at it, but he had the wisdom of, 
uh, a, a situation, and it's the famous, well, you know, split the baby into two and give it to the halves, one to the mother and one to the, uh, the mother who was not. She was the fake one. And at the time, people marveled at that, but uh, it would have been able to decide which one was real mom, I mean, if you were in that kind of situation. I tend to lean that way, that he was a more patient man and that he was decisive with his decision-making. He wasn't uh, wishy-washy. He did not publicly question himself. When he made a decision, he made it confidently, and people followed that confidence, and he made good choices. And there was a record established for him. But not only did he receive that, 1 Kings chapter 3, we're in verse 12 now, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. I have, excuse me, and I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. There's a condition. I think it's important to note this condition because I'm not teaching tonight about how to be successful in the workplace. You can apply these things in your workplace. I'm not teaching about how you can have you know, a really good family, although you can have those things. There was a condition to these things that God had given to Solomon, and we'd be wise to look at them and I think apply to ourselves the same things. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and commandments as thy father David did, then I will lengthen thy days. What was Solomon's major issue? He did not keep these ways. As a matter of fact, because of the, his, because of his wisdom, he used it to explore every area of life. You read Ecclesiastes, it's extremely depressing if you don't understand the, the truth of life after death. But what, what is there? Anything that we can get in this life? We work hard, we sweat, we put away for ourselves and our families, and then we die. And that's it for a life without any kind of future afterwards. And what a miserable life. You can see how the atheist is just a raging, depressing person. There's nothing to look forward to. You can see how we get to these conclusions that life is miserable if Christ is not risen. We have no hope of the life to come if, if Jesus is still dead in the ground. And he's not. And praise God for it. But Solomon, he used his wisdom inappropriately, gathered a lot of different counsel, had a real problem with women in his life, and ultimately, you see later on in, in 1 Kings, it was because of the gods of those women in his life that he tore down the altars to Jehovah and he set up these pagan, ritual, sexual groves in their place to other gods like Ashtaroth and Chemosh and Molech. The kingdom was taken from him. From that point forward, I think it's 1 Kings 10 or 1 Kings 12, Solomon is not mentioned favorably after. And he writes in Ecclesiastes about having everything, but having nothing, even in the gathering of material things. But when he was young, he made a wise choice to submit to the Lord and ask him for judgment. And he got it. He got it. Now look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. We're going to get into um, these notes here in just a moment. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, Paul just got done talking about Israel in the wilderness as a warning example. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, it was very secular, very carnal. 
very baby Christian, not a lot of growth, and a lot of normalizing sin. And this letter was a rebuke to them to change their behavior, to act the way they are in Christ, not the way they are in their sinful nature. But he goes through and does all these different things about the serpents and the idols and fornication that was happening and doubting God and uprising, all these examples. But he says this in verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Now this is interesting. What does this mean? There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. We're all going through the same thing, just a different level of intensity or variety. We're all going through the same things. There's not something that's going to happen to you that is totally unique. And this is what I think is happening with a lot of the liberal progressive mentality today. It's like these problems are brand new. They're not. These alternative lifestyles that people think they're making up now, you go study ancient Rome, the stuff was there. It it was there and it was flourishing and it was accepted, it was protected. So what's the difference? There's these temptations that we face as Christians in this time. The variety and intensity may be different, but they're same problems. Look at the solution. But God is what? Boy, we need a faithful God, don't we? Isn't it good that that's a quality of His? And we're not talking about He's faithful most of the time. You may be a person who's on time a lot. Something happens on the road and it's at a standstill. Even though you may have prepared with the best intentions to get to your destination on time, there are things that can stop you. There is nothing that can stop God. Nothing's going to make him late. I've said this before. He, he, he is not a hands-on-hip, hand-on-forehead like this. I did not see that coming. Boy, I didn't think that they were going to elect him. That's nuts. i got to go back to the drawing board. Doesn't happen with God. Isn't that comforting? I mean, I, there are people in my life that I love dearly, but I can't trust them as much as I trust God. That's just a simple truth. And that's nothing against them, but folks, they're not God. And you're going to see in a moment about this God is faithful thing. And and in verse 14, you'll see some, I think you'll see a comparison there. But look at what this says in the middle of 13. Who will not suffer or allow you to be tempted above that ye are able. You've heard this phrase, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Okay, Uh, I guess that kind of makes sense, but I like this better. (laughs) I like this scriptural language better, that God's not going to tempt you above what you can endure. And as you get to that point where you feel like you're going to break, where it feels like it's overwhelming, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape. And I think the way of escape is remembering that God is faithful. Study Israel in the wilderness. What was their problem? They did not believe that God was going to do what he said he would do. Think about what they had already seen in Egypt alone with the plagues. I actually saw a great video. I don't want to talk much about it because I don't, I'm trying to recall it and I'm failing at, at the time. But there was a study about how each one of the plagues in Egypt actually threatened the power of Egyptian gods. Like with the blood and the frogs and the darkness. It was a really interesting study. I thought, man, what, what's the point of that? And this scholar, at the, he was making the conclusion that God was demonstrating himself more powerful than these gods in Egypt. And to that I say, amen, that's pretty cool. 
But you come to see all these things that happened to Egypt and Israel was spared, especially the blood on the doorpost, the last plague, especially the crossing of the dry ground on the Red Sea, and especially as the whole army of the most powerful nation in the world at that time was gone in, the, in, a, matter of, in a matter of moments to have the Red Sea come back to full level. And they still would say, it'd be better if we were back in Egypt. Moses, what did you do? You brought us out here to die? They send the spies out. They see the giants in the land and all that. And they come back and they say, no, 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 God can't do that. They don't say that, but that's essentially what they're saying. And what was the, what was the punishment? This whole generation is going to die in the wilderness. And that's how long they wandered, 40 years. 40 years. And their carcasses were in the wilderness. And that phrase carcass, you go look it up in Hebrews, it's used there. And that's a pretty graphic term, you know. You don't go to a funeral and say, here lies the carcass. Uh, this is something to say they wasted it. They wasted the blessings they could have had here. They wasted the opportunity to rest. You and I can do the same thing. We face problems and we just, we are so brittle. We are so fragile that as soon as there's pressure, it's broken. And that's not a good thing. And if that describes you, you need to ask yourself, why? You know, what's, what's going on here? Because I've got a verse that says, God is not going to test me above that which I can endure. And if I do get to my breaking point, I can remember that he is faithful. So if you're breaking, it's, it's a weakness on your part. And I'm just saying lovingly, you need to ask yourself why. And that's a good exercise to see, well, what am I not believing that God has asked me to believe? And by the way, I, I, I learned this in college about giving criticism. Many of you might be in a position where you have to critique somebody who's sensitive, and they, they just don't take criticism well. Here's a good way to do that. You sandwich your criticism between two positives. Positive, constructive, positive. You say something that is encouraging. You're doing this, you're doing X, Y, and Z, and this is well, and all that, and then you transition to the critique. You don't go, but you're really dumb in this area. I can't believe you did that. What were you thinking? And you mock and do that. You don't want to do that kind of criticism. But you just offer up can you tell me what you were thinking when you were going through this? How'd you get to this conclusion? Let them speak. Walk them through the issue. Get the critique done. Then you, at the end, I think you're going to do well with this. Is there any way that I can help you achieve that goal? That's teamwork. If it's, some, if it's just a, a, a criticism, then it, you leave the person feeling less than, especially if they're already sensitive at, from, from the beginning. And I don't think God deals with us like that. He's very patient. His, his mercy is, uh, is new for us every morning. Aren't you glad for that? He doesn't carry things over. I'm, I'm glad for that. Look at 14. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee idolatry. I've always been interested as to why is idolatry the thing to flee from here. I think it's whether, whether it's a material thing or an immaterial thing, I think people have the tendency, especially in our culture today, to make their feelings the idol. I don't like how that boss made me feel. Could have been a great boss, great job, but they didn't take criticism well. I don't like how this problem makes me feel. And you're going to look at a moment. There's six different things that people do when problems come up and how to solve them. Well, God's told me to do this, but you know what? I don't like the way that makes me feel, so I'm not going to do it. Careful, you've just made an idol, and that idol is yourself. So you've got to be careful with that. 
All right, let me share with you some takeaways here. You can go to James chapter 1 and verse 19. We're going to get there in a little bit, but I just want to talk to you here from some of the notes that I took in this, uh, or that I made for when I was teaching this class. I think this will be encouraging to you. Some takeaways on this study, especially this chapter in the textbook, for those of you that are watching this and are actually taking the class. People will follow a leader who gives solutions to problems that hinder them from reaching the objective. So there's a goal in mind. People are more likely to follow somebody who gives solutions that are practical. Dr. Arnold would always tell me this. I'm glad he's here tonight. Dr. Arnold would always tell me this. If you come to my office with a problem, have a solution. You know what that caused me to do? As soon as I would go to that door and knock, I'd go... Because very quickly, you can realize followers can just add to the problems because they're not being coached on how to problem solve. And especially if there's a leader, let's say we've got this air conditioning problem, right? Okay, can you imagine if I came in on Sunday morning and I said, guys, the thing blew up, it's bad, it's really bad. I don't know what we're going to do. What? What's the objective? Get air conditioning. If I don't have any kind of solution, what am I doing? I'm just stating a problem. Anybody can be an observer. An accident happens on the road. Why does traffic slow down if it's not blocking traffic? Everybody's looking. No solutions. Everybody's looking. People want to follow somebody who gives clear, practical solutions. Number two, the leader must solve problems that hinder followers themselves from reaching their objectives And the more barriers that frustrate your followers, the less likely they are to reach the goal. The more problems remain unsolved, the less likely people are going to be motivated to get to a solution. This happens with young ministries. Happens real quickly. Happens with youth groups. Happens with Bible studies. The more barriers come up, if there's not a good leader who can solve problems... The followers, and what I mean by followers is just people that are volunteering, they begin to fall off because there's not anything being proposed to fix these problems. I want you to write these down. Three common questions, three common questions that people ask when problems happen. You ready? They're very simple. Each one of these is just two words. Number one, why me? You may have asked this yourself. A problem happens, you say, why me? Okay, number two, why now? And number three, why this? And I think people are very good at asking, why me, why now, why this? But they don't come to the office with a solution. They just recognize there's a problem, it's impacting them, and that's as far as they go. Write these three things down that you need to know about the nature of problems themselves. Number one, you cannot run from them. You cannot run from problems. Number two, you cannot stop them from happening. And number three, they can be solved. Yeah. They can be solved. I think a lot of what's happened, probably about 2016, right around that time, there were these safe spaces on college campuses. 
And I remember this not because they were called safe spaces, but because what these spaces tried to do, which is they tried to eliminate students from any kind of problems, any kind of threat, any kind of social injustice, whatever it was, these spaces were supposed to be safe from any kind of problems. That world doesn't exist. It does not exist. There are bad people. There are people that are set on doing harm. You cannot run from that truth. What you can do is prepare yourself. We have a plan in place at the church here. God forbid if something were to happen and we found ourselves under some type of attack. We've got a plan. What good would it be if I got together with the board and we all just hemmed and hawed about how horrible it is that people want to do bad things to churches and we ended the board meeting? What have we done? Nothing. We've actually done what Israel did in the wilderness. Murmured and complained. And that's never a good thing. And there's plenty of people that will do that. Trust me. You have probably ran into people like this. They've all, somebody has a solution and they're always like, they don't even say anything. You just get that nostril thing. <laughs> One of those. Those are always fun people. But those are people that tend to just stick with the why me, why now, why this. They don't go on to solve their own problems. So I'll repeat those again. Three things you need to know about problems. You cannot run from them. You cannot stop them from happening, and they can be solved. The solution may be long and tedious, but there is a solution. It's foolish and naive to think that nothing bad will ever happen. We're going to put these ACs in, Lord willing. It is foolish of me to think, I will never have to do maintenance on those again. It, they're done forever. When the Lord comes back, he'll use them for buildings in the millennium. That's naive. We have two units in the back that just needed a couple thousand dollars worth of work. Oh, it's just one thing after another. I wish I had ACs that could never have maintenance. Well, guess what? That's not going to happen. And every time our ministry begins to start going up, you guys don't see this, but there's something that comes in and it's a problem. And I'm, I have to prepare myself for those. I'm not looking for the next problem, but I'm not going to go, oh, what? I thought I solved all the problems at Calvary. You know what happened last year? That water line broke. I'm watching the camera. And I'm going, bubbling from the ground, not a good thing. I don't know. Maybe it's the tree is leaking water. I, I literally told myself that because I did not want to face this problem. Well, I get here and it's all sandy. And for those of you who know much about a busted water line, that dirt is just going to rise up. I mean, it looked like a beachhead. I was like, oh no. So we went out, Jan and I did this. This was after Hurricane Ian. Went out to there, to the front, shut the water off, the bubbling stopped. I went, the next, that week, we're out here and we're digging, we're digging, going through trying to see where does this happen? Is it galvanized? Is it galvanized? Is it galvanized? Sure is. Well, it was a big problem. I'd be foolish to say, oh, why me? Why now? Why this? And not have a solution. Solution was expensive, but we got a brand new water line in in a couple of weeks. It threatened the missions conference. We couldn't meet for three weeks because we didn't have proper facilities up to code. All that stuff was a problem. Well, as a leader, I've got to make sure that I don't give off the impression that 
I never saw something like this coming, and if it ever did, it would just totally wreck us. There'd be no way to come back from it. There are people that lead like that, and I'm going to say this very pointed and directly, they don't lead for long. Those leaders don't make it because they do not understand the nature of problems. Now, I want you to think about in a family. you got kids. You, they, they have friends. They have interactions, social things. You have responsibilities and all that. Mom and dad, you need to know you cannot run from problems. You cannot stop them from happening, and they can be solved. I think one of the major problems that parents run into when their kids start getting willy-nilly, you know, and run around stuff, broken bone. Nobody's planning for that. Trent's not going to wake up and go, all right, Noah's breaking a bone this week. Cheyenne, we need to prepare. Do you have this? Do you have that? Nobody's planning on that. It happens. And if, you, if, if you're not ready to be able to solve problems, you can lose your, your, your control, your composure. That's unhelpful for your spouse. It's certainly not helpful for your poor kid who's got a broken arm or whatever. You've got to be able to handle these things as they come up. But if you train yourself to think this way, when the problem happens, you're like, all right, didn't plan on this, but I know that problems exist. This can be solved. It may be expensive, but that's okay. We'll get it taken care of. And I'll tell you some other things later on about that specifically. All right, write these uh, things down. Three things that cause problems. You ready? Change. Number one, change. Change of leadership, change of the culture, the environment, people, volunteers, those things can cause problems. Number two, and this one's the hardest because it has to do with people. And not everybody's compatible. (laughs) And I think it's good you know how you work with people. But this one, in my experience, is this one right here that causes the most problems. Differences. Differences. Let's say we've got a we're all focusing on this microphone here. Somebody could be looking at it from this angle of the room and give a description of it that is different from someone who's standing right here and looking at it head on. Same microphone, differences in perspective. person that's looking at it this way describes it a certain way from the person over here. Then they look at that person and go, are you stupid? It's right here. And they look and say, ah, I think you might be the one who's lacking knowledge. It looks like this. Now you've got two people, they're not focused on the problem, they're focused on each other, and boom! Especially if they don't have disciplined spiritual lives, it's like dry, dry wood, and someone tosses one spark on it. What happened? Well, differences cause problems. If you're leading ministry, especially if you're in a family, you know all about this. Things happen, especially if you've got kids. You know, your kids are not always nice to each other. Newsflash, I don't know if that is a newsflash for you, but look, I have two brothers and we always were trying to get under somebody's skin all the time and things would pent up. I wish I had time to tell you a story, but I don't. Maybe we'll get to it later. All right, and the third one here, change differences and circumstances, okay? Something happens outside of the control of the church or the family or the workplace that impacts the ability. COVID's a perfect example of this. Businesses that thrived after that uh, experience were ones that adapted to the circumstances. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to make an observation of those circumstances. I'm just saying, you see a lot now how the world is different. And those who have 
manage that type of business that, you know, no contact, uh, contactless delivery and all sorts of stuff like that, those businesses find themselves a little bit higher than people who chose not to look for ways to solve problems. All right, three questions a good problem solver asks. You ready? How big is the problem? This is what I like to do. I like to see how far does this go? Sometimes that's a very dangerous thing. It was like when we were digging out here. We dug in one spot for that water line and we didn't see anything. And then we thought, okay, we got to go a little bit further. And every time you're digging, you're messing up that nice grass. You're tired. You run the risk of puncturing a sprinkler line. You know, but you got to find out how big is the problem. A good problem solver asks those questions. Number two, who is involved in the problem? And this is how you avoid gossip. If you are not a part of the solution, keep out of the problem solving. If you are not a part of the solution, keep out of the solution to that problem. So many people gossip about things that have nothing to do with them, and it ruins people's trust. If you're not a part of the solution, you stay out of it. But if you're trying to figure out what's going on, you're the leader, you're, you're in your family, you're in the workplace, find out who's involved in the problem. And number three, what do volunteers think about the problem? Because, again, that's the perspective of the microphone that we were talking about. You as the leader might see it from one way, but your volunteers see it a different way. You've got to ask. And you know why leaders don't ask this question? Because they're prideful. They think it's a position of weakness to ask for help. I'm seeing this a lot now. There's this big, big bodybuilder community on, on uh, YouTube. And there's this one guy, he's leading the whole thing, and he's a really good father figure, and he means well. I don't know if he's a spiritual guy. But he's talking about, I guess some of his followers recently took their lives. It's a sad thing, and this is just terrible that this happens. But he's, he's talking about it's not a weak thing to ask for help. It's not a weak thing to ask for help. And that's kind of ingrained in masculine culture today. You're weak to ask for help. No, that's a wise thing to do. Solomon did it, and it pleased the Lord. And he got a lot of blessings as a result of it. But you've got to be willing to listen to the advice that you get. If I bring a problem to, let's say we had a special meeting for a special set of circumstances, just the members, and I give a problem that's happened and a proposed solution, and I ask for feedback, I can't take offense by getting, and uh, let's say somebody gives me a solution that's better than mine. I can't go, might not think of that. I'm going to silence them. I don't like that they're smarter than me. I feel threatened. That's not a good leader. Describes a lot of leaders today. A good leader listens, asks for that advice. How big? Who's involved? What do people think about the problem? All right. Six common attitudes toward problems. And I think, I think we'll have fun here. Because if, if you think back in your life to problems that have uh, risen in your life and how they were addressed, I bet you you'll find a few for each one. Number one, launch an all-out attack on everything over the one problem. I think this is a lot of conservatives today. One thing happens, and there's just a whole attack that happens over everything, not even the problem, the problem included, but just every area of life has to just come to a screeching halt. Look in James chapter 1 and verse 19. This is important. 
Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to speak. Give your opinion. Stand up real quick. Is that what it says? Swift to what? Here. You remember 1 Kings 3? An understanding heart, a hearing heart. Wow, that carries over. Slow to speak. Slow to wrath. I remember teaching this to younger kids, and we would always rush that one part. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to wrath. I think Freddie did that too at camp. Is that you? Yeah. Are you doing it back there? Are you doing it too? It's a great way to illustrate how we should handle these things. You don't burn the whole house down because the dishwasher doesn't work. But that's what people are doing. They actually have the match. They're ready to light something on fire. Just give me a reason. And they're ready to do it. Look at 20. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And you are righteous in the eyes of God. So don't act in a difference to your nature. All right, so they launch an all-out attack over the problem. Number two, they attack the problem. Number three, they fuss and are threatened by the problem like it's an irritation. Like there's a lot of, you know, sucking teeth, like, why is this so annoying? Why is this, why is this always happening? Oh, bad timing. Lots of talk, no solutions, just really irritated by the problem. Number four, they take offense and they surrender. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1 in verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love, and this is what I want to draw out here, and of a sound mind. This fourth one here, which is take offense and surrender, that's a position of fear. Number five, retreat and suppress. Now, this is different from number four. Can you spot the difference? Number four is take offense and surrender. Number five is retreat and suppress. What's the difference? They begin to believe something unrealistic about the problem. This is the most dangerous one. They look at the problem and say, that's not really a problem. Because they twist and twist and twist and say, see, it's not that bad. They begin to change the reality of things. That's very dangerous. That's how you get people that are struggling with like gender identity and stuff. Because there's something going on. There's a reality, but they want to so desperately avoid the problem, so they twist the truth, or they, they, they make the lie the truth. That's really dangerous. How do you do that? You retreat from it and you suppress it. And then number six, which is the right thing to do, is apply a strategy and solve the problem. Earlier, number two was attack the problem. Why is that not the best solution? There's no applied strategy. You can have, and there's some things where a quick judgment is good. But most of the times, especially when you're talking about a ministry or a family, you need to apply a strategy. My wife and I did this when we were working on our debt. We said, here's the problem. What's the strategy? Because we could just pay off the debt, but if we don't learn how to manage our money well, we're going to be right back in the same position. So let's apply a strategy. 
And we did all these silly things. One of the things we did, which was actually quite, it was, it was quite funny. We got a Ziploc baggie for each of the little credit card we had. And we filled them with water and threw them in the refrigerator, or in the freezer. We didn't save them anywhere online. There were no autofill forms or anything. And if we wanted to use that thing, you'd have to take it out, thaw it, you know. And the thought is, in all the time and effort it takes to do that, you'd go, I froze this for a reason. I don't need this. Whatever I want to buy, I don't need it. See, that's a better way to solve problems. Freeze your credit cards. No, I'm just kidding. Literally. (laughs) No, no, the solution is, look for a strategy. I think it'd be great if husbands, wives, you guys would do this together. Trust one another. Talk to one another. Be vulnerable. Don't, don't think, well, I'm the man. I can't make any decision incorrectly. Well, get ready for a failure because that it's, that, that, that's not corresponding with reality. Trust your spouse. Talk about these things. And then when you come to an applied strategy, implement the strategy on the problem. All right. We're going to wrap up here. Two more sections. Write these three things down. Three problem-solving mindsets. Three problem-solving mindsets. Number one, look for the positive. Look for the positive. I'll tell you exactly how we did this with the waterline. I looked at that positive as, number one, God has blessed us to make this large of a financial commitment. We were able to pay for that without going into any debt. The faithfulness of people routinely giving to the ministry enabled us to make that rather unexpected repair. And the repair that we got is of infinitely better quality than what was in before. Now, I know there's other problems. The rest of the building is still calvinized, and there is some lower water pressure. We'll get to that problem when we can. But we need to see the we need to see the positive even in the problems. There is positive. What's the number one positive? God is faithful. You start thinking like that, your life is going to change. You'll be a much happier person because God's faithful. Number two, see the people. Learn to eliminate the people from the problem. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, like someone who's struggling in a sinful thing and you just ignore the sinful thing, but recognize there's a person there This will help you in your marriage tremendously. It it helps me in my marriage. When I'm upset or when something's not right and I want to lash out in some smart remark or just a mean thing, I've got to remember the person I'm going to say this to is a person. And this will hurt them. And I need to be sure. You want to do that? Even though there's a problem, see that there's a person. Learn to see people. There's a song that I love. I heard it first by uh, 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 Mr. Brooks. People need the Lord. I love that song. I heard Greg Steer one time at a Dare to Share give an example of when you walk around and you see people in the world, imagine there's, a, there's, a, there's something stamped on their foreheads that says one of two things, saved or lost, saved or lost. If they're lost, give them the gospel. If they're saved, love one another. At the time, that really struck a chord with me. See people. And number three, see the positive, see people. Number three, Ben Shapiro would love this one. See the facts. What are the facts? Address the facts of the situation. 
Don't go for the, oh, it would be great if this. Okay, yes, but no. (laughs) That's not the reality of things. Here's the facts. Move forward with that. All right, last thing here. Go to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13. And then we will, uh, I'll give you these six things very quickly and then we'll close. (laughs) I just thought about a funny joke there about a pastor saying, in closing, we'll look at these six things. (laughs) And everyone goes, oh boy, we better get get comfortable. (laughs) Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13 through 17. We'll we'll get there in a moment. All right, I'm going to give you these six tips developing problem-solving skills. So you've heard all we've talked about. You may even say, you know what? Some of those are me. I'm not proud of it, but some of those things are me. All right, well, here's how you can develop better skills. Number one, learn to take everything to God in prayer. I can't tell you how much that's changed my life as I've pastored this church. Every single thing, a victory or a failure, a problem or a solution, I am taking that to the Lord in everything. It's a habit now. I enjoy it. I crave it to bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, what do we do? And I I don't even care if I get an answer. I'm just so glad I can ask him. It changes my stress. Any kind of anxiety I would have over worrying about a problem, I would worry myself sick about certain things that would happen. And that would rub off on my wife. It would rub off on how I look at the scripture. It would rub off on how I soul win the people. I was less likely to do it because I was like, I got too many problems. I got too many things to figure out. Boy, the ultimate stress relief is taking it to the Lord in prayer. Take your burden to the Lord and leave it there. Hmm. There's a song about that. It's called Leave It There. And it's really good. And I wish I could sing it for you right now, but I'm concerned I don't know all the lyrics. So look it up. Number one, learn to take everything to God in prayer. Number two, trust that God will provide before you ever get an answer or a hint of the right direction. You want to summarize that? Trust that God is faithful. He's not going to destroy you for the sake of destroying you. Number three, learn to seek counsel from people who have faced similar problems. This one I would put right up to taking everything to the Lord in prayer. Reach out. Don't be afraid to ask. How many of you have been to college? Raise your hand if you've been to college, you've, you've studied after high school. Okay. You know you were probably more successful the more that you applied yourself to learning. And the more that you enjoyed it, it became easier to pass tests and quizzes. You retained information better. It was something you found joy in. Find joy in applying yourself to listening to the older generation. People who have been through what you are now going through. I've called Dr. Arnold about several things. Dr. Kakuza up in Minnesota. You guys have seen him. He was on the podcast a little while ago. I've spoken to him. I've spoken to pastors at Quinton Road about many different things. Things that I might say, yeah, I know I'm going to do this, but let me just see. What have other people done that has been successful? There's a... Paul Julian is his name. Pastor Paul Julian, James knows him as probably one of his pastors that he was under. He wrote a great book called Convictions. It's an excellent book. It goes all through this type of counsel. Number four, you ready for it? You ready? Be patient. 
<laughs> That's number four. Be patient. You're not going to find the solution for everything right away. This is why you need to be content with prayer, because prayer is something you can do, and God hears you. For the life of me, I wanted, to, I wanted that water line fixed the, the day before, but it took a long time. And there were many, there's still some problems we have to solve with the sprinkler system there, and we're going to have to solve it. And it's going to have to involve some digging and all that and figuring it out, but there is a solution. But be patient while the solution is implemented or while the strategy is built to get to the solution. Number five, communicate your strategy clearly and without preference. Boy, this is what really sinks solutions. The leader thinks of a solution, and when they communicate it, number one, it's not clear. Or number two, they have preference. Well, we're obviously going to do this because I said so. Uh, any questions? Anybody have any ideas? <laughs> you've just muted everybody. Because <laughs> you've just said very clearly, this is what we're going to do. Now, that's appropriate for some things, not everything. I see this, and this is what I love about both the boards that I serve on. All of the men have this ability to communicate their, their strategy clearly. And there may be some quibbling every now and then, and we go back and forth, but there's never an intent to, Louis has a different opinion. I'm going to destroy him and just exert my dominance. What does that do for anybody? Nothing. That's a selfish thing. Communicate your strategy clearly and without preference. And here's the last one. Read verses 13 through 17 in Colossians 3 with me, okay? Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on love. The older word there is charity, which is the bond of perfectness. It's the glue to maturity, love. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, the things you say or the things that you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So what is point number six? Love one another. Be patient. Be willing to forgive. I know it's hard to hold, a, or it's easy to hold a grudge, but it's easy to hold a grudge because you've trained yourself to make it easy. You learn to love people the way that Christ loves people. You learn to forgive people the way Christ has forgiven you. You'll be a much happier person, a much easier person to work with, and you'll be set up to make wise decisions to discern between good and evil. But if you make an idol of yourself, you're setting yourself up for failure. Not many people will follow somebody like that. I pray this has been encouraging to you. That's the goal of this, is to help. It's more than just trying to record for classes that didn't get done, although we did achieve that. <laughs> I want to encourage you to take these things and apply them. Go home, talk to your family, talk to your uh, to, to the people that you work with. If you're in ministry, ask people when you're looking for solutions to problems. But make sure that you're putting the Lord in the middle of everything, at, at the center of it, and love one another. I'm going to let this hand represent you and me and let my wallet represent sin. 
I'm going to demonstrate how you can know, according to the Bible, you have eternal life. I put this wallet on top of my hand that represents everybody because we've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. You have to be absolutely perfect to get to heaven, but because of sin, we are separated from God. The wages of sin, as it's described in the Bible, is death, eternal separation from God forever in a place called hell. But God loves us very much. This sin separates us from him. We cannot, by any good works, pay for this sin by those good works. We can't say, if I go to church, if I stop this and I start that and I live a good life, then God will honor my good works with a righteousness, a stamp of righteousness, and that's not going to happen. We're not saved by any good works. Somebody has to die. This hand is going to represent Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, fully God and fully man. What Jesus did is he died on the cross in our place took our sins, paid for it, was buried and rose again three days later. When he said on the cross, it is finished, the payment for sin was accepted by God. It pleased God to bruise his son to pay for this sin. And the Bible says, for God so loved the world, that's you and me, that he gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus Christ, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth, that is the Greek word pistuo, and it means to put trust in to put confidence in, to rely upon. So how does somebody saved? You simply put your trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection paid for your sin. The moment that you do that, God gives you permanent righteousness. But what if I sin and mess up? Well, that's a good question to ask because we all will, but that is a part of our old nature. We don't want to do those things, but we do, And we will receive punishment for them, but that doesn't nullify our salvation. The payment for sin is permanent. You can have everlasting life. Simply trust on Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If that made sense to you today, the gospel invitation, I encourage you to believe if you haven't done so already. I would love to know and pray for you. Is there anyone at all that would just say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm going to raise my hand here so you can pray for me. Would you just raise your hand and let me know? Anyone at all before we close? As we're coming to a close here, heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. I I pray that you can consider these little tips and suggestions towards problem solving and, and implement them and see the scriptural benefit of humility and taking everything to the Lord. Ask for good discernment. That pleases Him. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to study and apply your word. We pray for the Awana program that's coming to a conclusion for the night. And we pray that you bring us back here safely and all the things going on this week. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.